Section 2 of President Lincoln's Attitude Toward Slavery and Emancipation by Henry Watson Wilbur. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Invoking the Letter of the Law The Union had barely become an established fact when the slave power proceeded to make the supposed constitutional guarantees given to slavery effective by law. In 1793, a bill was passed by Congress to facilitate the capture of fugitive slaves. This law contained four provisions. It guaranteed the right to arrest the fugitive when found. This, in many cases, amounted to arrest on suspicion and on the unsupported assertion of the alleged owner. The law also conferred the right to take the fugitive before a magistrate when he was arrested. It made it the duty of the magistrate to examine the case and commit the alleged slave to the custody of the master. The right of the master to remove the fugitive from the jurisdiction wherein he was found was also upheld. It was not an uncommon thing for runaway slaves to be arrested under the provisions of this act of Congress. With the growth of the abolition movement, attempted escapes became more frequent, and the branches of the Underground Railroad made successful escape increasingly possible. The provisions of the fugitive slave laws did not stop the attempt of slaves to secure their freedom, and there was an increasing revulsion in the North, against every man being constituted a possible slave hunter. A good deal of partial history has been written about the non-enforcement of the statute of 1793, and the so-called Compromise Act of 1850. This non-enforcement has been given as a cause of the Civil War, by a distinguished historian and publicist. Quote, it seemed evident to the Southern men, too, that the North would not pause or hesitate because of constitutional guarantees. For twenty years, Northern states had been busy passing personal liberty laws intended to bar the operation of the federal statutes concerning fugitive slaves and to secure for all alleged fugitives legal privileges which the federal statutes withheld. More than a score of states had passed laws with this object, and such acts were as plainly attempts to nullify the constitutional action of Congress as if they had spoken the language of the South Carolina Ordinance of 1832. This statement sounds plausible, and might really be so, if there was no difference between attacks for the support of the general government and a demand for the return of men and women to an unnatural bondage. But the facts of the case are that the slave-catchers frequently apprehended persons upon whom no valid claim under the law rested. Several states had provided that the residence of a slave within their borders, for a specified time, with the knowledge of his master, made him a free man. Persons of this sort were liable to be apprehended and dragged back into slavery. The above statement, by President Wilson, undoubtedly represents the extreme southern view regarding what was called northern nullification representing a supposed provoking aggressiveness on the part of the free states but the provocation was not one-sided in this particular let us summon another southern-born man as a witness as follows Quote, the southern leaders in washington forced gag rules through congress to keep out abolitionist petitions they suborned the postal service to their ends and got abolitionist literature debarred from the mails they invaded the north and dragged slaves back to their plantations they browbeat liberty men in congress they hanged john brown 
whenever they failed to crush out abolitionism it was because there was in the nature of things no way to reach it not because northern public men kept them from having their will upon it this is a mild and truthful statement of what happened during this period such as the brutal attack upon charles sumner in the senate chamber by representative preston s brooks of south carolina in eighteen fifty six and the border ruffian outrages in kansas both sides were intense and both did things not wise and generally not gentle the south was much more militant than the north and more used to bloodletting so that assaults upon the person like the murder of elijah p lovejoy footnote a clergyman a native of the state of maine who went to st louis and edited a religious newspaper in which he opposed the barbarisms of slavery to escape persecution he moved his paper to alton illinois where he was most viciously treated his plant was destroyed and a new press was secured in defending his property against a pro-slavery mob he was shot and killed november seventh eighteen thirty seven and footnote by a pro-slavery mob at alton illinois was pretty universally monopolized by the advocates and representatives of the slave power for a complete understanding of the issue raised in this chapter it is worth while to find out just what the fugitive slave law and the so-called personal liberty laws were the fugitive slave law of eighteen fifty was surely a sample of misfit legislation in a republic while the constitution of our country provided for trial by jury in all suits at common law when the value in controversy exceeded twenty dollars an issue involving the freedom of men women and children was committed to a single united states commissioner endowed with absolute and arbitrary power and from whose decision there could be no appeal heavy penalties were imposed on american free men who might be instrumental in rescuing or concealing a runaway slave or directly or indirectly aiding his escape the penalty for such an exhibition of humanity was a fine not exceeding one thousand dollars and imprisonment not exceeding six months in addition civil damages might be collected by the injured slaveholder to the amount of one thousand dollars for each slave thus assisted to escape the claimant might arrest a fugitive and take him before a magistrate without process in hearing the case the testimony of the alleged slave was not admitted the most interested party being ignored a bribe of five dollars in the open palm was offered to each commissioner if he would only return the alleged fugitive to slavery for this law provided a fee of five dollars to the magistrate if he pronounced the defendant a free man while he received ten dollars if he was adjudged a slave it may be noted that when the matter of a few runaway slaves was involved the southern dogma of state rights was thrown out of the window and the national government was urged to enter a state and arbitrarily override its sovereignty the only possible warrant for considering this sample monstrosity in legislation the constitutional action of congress is the dred scott decision rendered by the supreme court in eighteen fifty seven this decision affirmed that neither a negro slave nor the descendant of such slave could be a citizen of the united states and therefore such person had no right of action in a federal court in the expressive language of the time the decision held that a colored man had no rights which a white man was bound to respect not even the right to the possession and protection of his own body if any white man disputed his claim 
that the fugitive slave law was considered constitutional in the fifties and was possibly accepted by a majority of the american citizens may be true but that any man during the past forty years could refer to its provisions with approval only shows how slow has been the progress of our humane perceptions the so-called personal liberty laws were purely local statutes and were mainly for local protection they began to appear in the forties and were partly called into being by a supreme court decision handed down in eighteen forty two which was particularly favorable to slave catchers and their arbitrary rights laws of this sort were amended and strengthened after the passage of the fugitive slave law in eighteen fifty fourteen northern states had laws which the sensitive slave power of the south claimed militated against slaveholders rights and sought their economic ruin in the main the personal liberty laws prohibited the use of the local legal machinery for the capture of fugitive slaves for instance they forbid the employment of the local jails or the local officials in the slave hunting business and provided protection for negroes hunted by kidnappers such a conservative newspaper as the national intelligencer of washington a paper always favorable to slavery said that the provisions of these laws were not unconstitutional the late vice-president henry wilson in referring to laws of this character passed in massachusetts said that they were quote, not designed to defeat her constitutional obligations or to interfere with the execution of even the fugitive slave act but simply to protect her own inhabitants End quote. the importance of these laws has been greatly exaggerated as has the damage done to slavery on account of the venturesome slaves who did not fancy the paternal and patriarchal system under which they were held in bondage and who either attempted to run away or succeeded in doing so in the year eighteen sixty only twenty slaves escaped from south carolina and one hundred nineteen ran away from their masters in kentucky during the same period the non-enforcement of the fugitive slave laws by the north because of the slight uncertainty it threw upon slave property was no cause for trying to dissolve the union it was a false cry of stop thief to deceive the unwary and stimulate sympathy for secession lincoln's early convictions it is never easy to locate actual beginnings of any sort and it is doubly difficult to say just when real convictions began to shape themselves in the minds of even concerned and serious men regarding lincoln's mind on the slavery question the above statement is particularly applicable on this point his biographers say quote, there have been several ingenious attempts to show the origin and occasion of mr lincoln's anti-slavery convictions they seem to us an idle waste of labor these sentiments came with the first awakening of his mind and conscience and were roused into active life and energy by the sight of fellow-creatures in chains on an ohio river steamboat and on the wharf at new orleans in spite of this exhortation it may be worth while to trace some of the steps by which lincoln was progressively led to take a stand against a domestic institution apparently so thoroughly safeguarded as to be immovable it would seem that his mind was first stirred on the slavery question by close observation of the institution in action lincoln and his friend john hanks went on a commercial expedition by flatboat to new orleans in eighteen thirty six 
the statement by hanks of the influence of this experience on his companion is quoted by mr lincoln's biographers with approval and may be considered authentic we are told that in new orleans they saw for the first time quote, negroes chained maltreated whipped and scourged lincoln saw it his heart bled said nothing was silent looked bad was thoughtful and abstracted i can say knowing it that it was on this trip that he formed his opinion of slavery it ran its iron into him then and there may eighteen thirty one i have heard him say so often and often lincoln was then twenty-seven years old three years later he was elected a member of the illinois legislature to which body he was subsequently twice re-elected it was during his second legislative term that he had occasion to protest against too much sympathy with slavery on the part of his colleagues passing resolutions in support of the institution was a popular pastime in the law-making bodies of many states illinois proceeded to join the legislative chorus in a series of resolutions against abolition societies and in reiteration of the extra-constitutional privileges enjoyed by slaveholders lincoln drew up a protest against the action of the majority his friend dan stone about to quit active politics for the bench signed the document with its author but no other office holder in illinois developed a like courage in this protest lincoln said that he quote, believed the institution of slavery was founded both on injustice and bad policy end quote. such an utterance was not popular with the public opinion of his constituents in sagamon county in eighteen thirty six there was apparently no reason for this deliverance against slavery but the honest conviction of the man who made it that lincoln was re-elected to the legislature after this episode proves that he was always personally more popular than the cause he represented as a candidate the period from the close of his legislative career in illinois to the year eighteen forty six seems to have been politically unproductive although it was undoubtedly a time of preparation in the latter year lincoln was elected a representative to congress defeating his democratic opponent peter cartwright the celebrated methodist preacher lincoln was the only whig representative from illinois in the thirtieth congress he allied himself with the opponents of the mexican war and thus invited the hostility of the slave power then insinuatingly when not insultingly maintaining a dominating influence in the national law-making body lincoln had scarcely got his bearings in the house when an attempt was made to give the fugitive slave law of seventeen ninety three greater efficiency and certainty in the district of columbia various resolutions pro and con were submitted and finally mr lincoln introduced an amendment to the pending measure one of its provisions was compensated emancipation in the district subject to a referendum in which all white male citizens of voting age were to decide the question the sixth section of mr lincoln's measure provided more effective machinery for the capture and rendition of fugitive slaves apprehended in the district of columbia having this measure in mind when lincoln was nominated for president in eighteen sixty wendell phillips vehemently denounced the candidate as quote, the slave hound of illinois end quote. 
it should be said in explanation if not in extenuation of lincoln's act that at no time did he doubt that the slaveholder was entitled to the protection of the government for his slave property where the institution was already established about eighteen fifty one lincoln replied to a letter received from his friend joshua speed reading between the lines of this correspondence the conclusion is warranted that speed had charged his friend with waning interest in the cause if there was any reason for this inference, it would simply indicate that the great emancipator had not entirely escaped the moral sleeping-sickness touching the slavery question, which afflicted the whole country following the compromise measures of 1850. Lincoln's letter is a most important document as a self-revelation of the movement of his mind, and the impelling motive which formed the basis of his interest in the cause of freedom. Mr. Lincoln thus wrote, quote, in 1841, you and I had a tedious low-water trip on a steamboat from Louisville to St. Louis. You may remember, as I well do, that from Louisville to the mouth of the Ohio, there were on board ten or a dozen slaves shackled together with irons. That sight was a continual torment to me, and I see something like it every time I touch the Ohio or any other slave border. It is not fair for you to assume that I have no interest in a thing which has, and continually exercises, the power of making me miserable. This personal admission may well introduce us to that strenuous time in the later fifties when Lincoln really put on the harness of service and sacrifice for freedom, only to be put off when death overtook him. End of section 2